0: Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi everyone. Today we are speaking about how to simplify your food to help you save time and money and optimize your health. And to join us in this discussion is our dear friend and registered dietitian and ADHD nutritionist, Becca Harris, otherwise known as the Nutrition Junkie. Becca helps others develop mindful eating habits and healthier relationships with food. And she also specializes in providing nutrition support for those with ADHD. And together we discuss how to simplify meal planning, including simple meal and snack ideas, tips to eat more mindfully, how to shop on a budget, especially during this time of inflation and how to streamline your grocery shopping experience. Becca also shares her expertise on how to identify trigger foods and food intolerances and how to break the binge eating cycle and other disordered eating patterns. Plus, she shares some eye-opening stats around food labeling. Be inspired to start building simpler and more intentional food and eating habits so that you can optimize your health for the long term. So our listeners often ask us about how we simplify food, including our eating regimens and what our diet looks like. And so we thought, who better to join us to discuss these areas than our good friend Becca. Now you're, yeah, of course. Yeah. And now you're otherwise known as the nutrition junkie on all of your socials. You are a nutritionist and registered dietitian, and you also specialize in nutrition support for those with ADHD, otherwise known as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And you offer a range of services to help your clients simplify food. And as you say, optimize their health. Now, to give our audience some background, can you briefly share what inspired you to study nutrition and eventually offer support for those with ADHD? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, what an intro. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, so I guess to start, as you mentioned, I am a dietitian specializing in ADHD, but I did start my career as a criminologist, which is always funny to say. And I do feel like there's a lot of connection between crime and other things, other aspects in our life. And I've always kind of been fascinated by why things are the way they are, why people do what they do. And this relates to crime, but also nutrition, business, other things. And so it's kind of that that drove me from the criminology to the nutrition world. But kind of in between, I worked for the government. I worked in sales. But during that time, I continued to kind of just resort back to nutrition. So every summer I worked in restaurants, catering companies, my mom's dietitian. So I've been exposed to this world my entire life. But one thing that kind of never really fit with me was the general nutrition recommendations. Uh, They just didn't feel like they fit my own eating habits. So personally I would often forget to eat. Uh, Sometimes I would engage in binge eating behaviors. And there were certain things like certain foods that I felt like I could just eat endlessly. And I had this thing about texture. So there was just like some things that I kind of really struggled with, including intuitive eating as well. But I just felt like nobody was really addressing these things in relation to food, uh, at least not in my world. And I felt like a little bit of a misfit. So taking that kind of curiosity and why why things are the way they are, why am I eating this way? It kind of drew me into nutrition and researching these things a little bit deeper. And that's kind of what pushed me back into school. So I ended up going back to school for a second undergrad and um, a master's degree. And then during my master's degree, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And then it was almost like the puzzle pieces kind of started falling together. And specifically with how I eat, it just started to make a lot more sense. And then once I kind of got to this point, I realized that I I really wanted to help other people who were going through the same thing. And so now my practice, as you said, I help ADHDers
0: optimize their own health and their time in the kitchen. That is awesome. That's so great. I remember. I remember the moment you told me. Oh gosh, I was just diagnosed with ADHD, and then you you took that as a hey, like now I can research this subject, and now I can help other people who are also suffering with it. And and I'm I'm curious. Can you describe the relationship between ADHD and disordered eating patterns? Because you mentioned that, and how meal planning can help alleviate symptoms of ADHD. Absolutely,
1: absolutely, I can. So yeah, so ADHD. It's associated with that, like inattention and sometimes that hyperactivity. Uh, So you can be one or the other, or you can be both, which is best of both worlds. But sometimes this can also result in ADHDers hyper-focusing on things that we're really passionate or engaged in. And sometimes this can lead to us forgetting to eat throughout the day, uh, especially if we're possibly on certain stimulant medications, those can kind of curb your appetite, which can also further you forgetting to eat throughout the day. And then sometimes comes the end of the day and you've barely eaten anything and your body kind of goes into this like survival mode and you might start overeating into the point where you feel uncomfortable and Sometimes this can like bring up feelings of shame um, and then the next day starts and you feel like you might need to limit your intake to make up for the day, the night before. And this kind of creates a cycle of disordered eating or what's often called like binge eating when the best thing that you could possibly do for yourself is likely just eat appropriately the next day to kind of help and break that that cycle so i mean of course like binge eating can be emotional and stuff as well um like if we are anxious or emotional eating that's absolutely a thing but oftentimes what i see is that it's a combination of possibly like emotional eating but then also either unintentionally or intentionally depriving themselves of like proper nutrition and kind of getting stuck in this disordered eating pattern. Um, and then I think the second part of your question was about meal planning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. I understand
1: that there's some strong evidence to support nutrition therapy for ADHD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I would say for nutrition therapy, more specifically, like the best thing that you can do to kind of help manage symptoms through nutrition is eat consistently. Uh, throughout the day and just making sure that you're nourished uh, because like you kind of, you want to avoid highs and lows in blood sugar, which can actually um, kind of perpetuate ADHD symptoms. But meal planning is a great way to kind of help alleviate that. It won't necessarily alleviate the symptoms, but eating the balanced diet can help alleviate the system or the symptoms and eating consistently throughout the day will help you do that. So it's kind of, Again, as I said, balancing those blood sugars so that we don't see the peaks or dips. And then like peaks can absolutely lead to like hyperactivity moments. And then uh, the dips can kind of lead to like exhaustion or inattention. So meal planning can kind of help us go throughout the day or the week with a plan. So when your focus might be elsewhere and not necessarily on food, you can kind of look to that plan uh, to guide you and kind of know what you're doing. And I'm a huge advocate for meal prepping. So there's obviously meal planning and then there's meal prepping. But meal prepping for me has been such a lifesaver. And this can, it can really just be as flexible or as rigid as you want it to be. But I absolutely love having options for when hunger strikes, because when it does, oftentimes a lot of people are just kind of grabbing the easiest thing next to them. And if you have, meals prepared or even parts of meals prepared that make creating something easier. It can just, it can be life-changing. And I should mention too, that people with ADHD often have a harder time identifying those hunger cues. Uh, So often, as I said, when you realize you're hungry, you're really hungry.
2: That's so interesting to link that. I feel like so many people would just get so busy with work and You know, they'd be working all day and they'd be like, oh, I haven't eaten. And they'd come home and overeat, but they would never think to like link it to ADHD. So it's, it's so interesting that you're studying and combining the two. I am the opposite though. I don't think I've ever forgotten a meal in my life. <laughs> like just all my years of dieting, even if it's like the most stressful day, I'd be like, "Whoa, it's almost lunchtime.
1: That's great. So, that's healthy. Yeah, I guess
2: that is. Well, it's like good and bad. I'm like, Oh, I wish I could like miss lunch over this stress, but that's not the way I, I operate. Um, I actually want to talk about uh, meal prep because we've talked about it just because obviously we're friends and I know you have your big meal prep Sunday. So how do you do it? Like, do you prep for like two or three days? Do you like grocery shop for the whole week? Can you kind of go into detail about how you do it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. As you said, I love my meal prep Sundays. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I am pregnant. And during the first trimester of my pregnancy, I was violently ill. Mm -hmm. And so that really kind of threw me for a loop because all of the systems that I had in place kind of got like thrown off kilter. Like I was unable to prepare foods because foods made me so nauseated, but I'm finally getting back into it. And I'm so happy (laughs) because I've missed it so much. But basically what I do is I on Sunday, I, I get all of my groceries. I have a plan for the week that I'll either prepare on Saturday or Sunday. And then Sunday evenings, I'll spend one to one to three hours, depending on how much I want to prepare and also how complicated the recipes are that I picked out. Um, but I'll prepare for like three to four-ish days, but I haven't really great setup with my partner currently where I do that initial meal prep at the beginning of the week. And then, um, during the end of the week, when we start running out of that food, he prepares those meals. So it's a really good system. So maybe I'll do three to four days and then he'll maybe do three days and then we'll order in one night or go out one night. So it works for us. It might not work for everyone, but, I absolutely love not having to make too many food-based decisions throughout the week. And so that's exactly how I like it.
2: (laughs) And you prep four different dinners or you prep one dinner that you can eat for four nights.
1: Yeah. So I'll usually prepare one breakfast. Normally it'll be like overnight oats or I will do egg bites or something like that. And then I will prepare two to three other options, um, sometimes for lunch, if it's something like a soup or something like that, but then also um, like one to two things for the evenings. And so you do have to kind of be one of those people who are okay eating the same thing for like yeah. two nights in a row because not everybody's like that and that's fine because I'm so into convenience, I can suck it up and do that. <laughs> and, and I've learned to love it. And so, so yeah, I feel like it just kind of helps like free up a lot of, of brain space for me.
2: Yeah, I always do the cook once, eat twice rule. Like I refuse to make dinner if it's not going to be at least two nights. (laughs) I think (laughs) it's a great strategy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a really great way to do things. I mean, it's economical. It's more sustainable. And uh, yeah, I love it how it saves you time throughout the day, which is great. And Mm -hmm. uh, soup can go a long way. My mom makes this amazing turkey soup every year. And I'm like, wow, I could drink. I could, I could, (laughs) I could have the super lunch every day. So it's (laughs) nice when you have those certain items that can go a long time, especially if you can freeze certain items as well, that Mm -hmm. makes it easier. So now before you were diagnosed with ADHD, I read that you often miss hunger cues, which you've mentioned, and you ended up resorting to quick snacks like cereals or bars as a quick fix. Mm -hmm. And now that's something that I still kind of struggle with at times myself, but today you have such a well-balanced diet. I mean, I follow your socials at the Nutrition Junkie, and I just love all the ideas that you share. Tons of simple, healthy snack ideas, meal ideas. And uh, so I'm curious, can you share a couple of snack staples in your diet and advice for others, keeping in mind everyone's diet and bodies are different? Yeah, absolutely. And I should note that I do still sometimes
1: miss hunger cues. It is a work in progress, Um, but that's one of the reasons why I really like having the food prepared food on hand. And so I usually do stick to things that I know will keep me satisfied for a longer period of time, especially when it does come to snacks. And again, we don't want that our blood sugar fluctuating too much throughout the day. So often what I'll do is I'll prepare something like a carbohydrate, like a whole grain with a protein or a fat. And usually that's a really good combination for like crushing hunger. So things like oats with Berries and like nuts and seeds or nut butter can be a really great snack. Um, Like a piece of whole grain toast with avocado and hemp seeds is like another favorite or even things like trail mix with like a piece of fruit. But I always try to combine foods and like those macronutrients just so that it's
2: keeping me full for longer and that I, I don't feel like I'm necessarily snacking throughout the day. We follow your Instagram, and you have so many good meals too. Like quick, and some are really convenient too. Can you just tell us some of your go-to meals?
1: Yeah, yeah. And you, Kelly, mentioned this earlier, but like preparing freezeable options is my absolute go-to in case I get sick of something by day two or. I just don't want to look at it anymore. It's easy to kind of put that food aside and put it in the freezer. That way you're not wasting it. And you have something to come back to in a week, a month. If you are hungry and you don't have the energy to make food, you just go to your freezer. And so I will often prepare some freezeable foods. So things like Uh, shredded chicken, stews, chili, banana bread, even sometimes like freezing smoothie ingredients together and then add the milk or almond milk to it right before you blend it. That can make the process so much easier. But then I'll also prepare usually like salad ingredients or sometimes just cut the veggies up for like a stir fry to make like later in the week. So those are my go-tos.
0: Wow, I wanna see images of your fridge and freezer. It sounds amazing. I actually, <laughs> myself, I just bought the Beast Blender. It's oh, amazing. They're, they're not a sponsor of ours, but it's the most minimalist blender you've ever seen. It's so beautiful oh. and it does the job so well. And I've started to combine- Blueberries with raspberries and and banana in little packets, and so that I could just pull it out. It's really nice. It makes yeah. it so much easier. I love that idea. And I know, I mean, I, I've seen so many stories on your Instagram. You're cooking muffins. You'll do a big batch and you'll freeze half of them. It's great. So smart. Yeah, I probably have about sixty muffins in the freezer
1: right now.
0: <laughs> oh wow! <laughs>
1: yeah, let it. me know if you're hungry. I'll bring some over. <laughs> yeah, that's great.
2: I know you went to become a dietitian, which is so interesting. Everything you got to study, Uh, what were some of the biggest myths about nutrition that you learned? Ooh, good question. I feel like there were a lot
1: of myths out there. I would say that the number one uh, is that mainstream dieting doesn't necessarily work mainstream. Uh, So usually what one person does to lose weight or feel good won't necessarily work well for the next person. So it does take a lot of time, but finding what works for you. So again, what makes you feel good, but what's also sustainable to you, it's kind of really the only way. And I feel like people hate hearing that, but that's definitely, I would say the number one
0: nutrition diet myth out there. I remember when we, we, we initially met, I remember you telling me that you prefer to eat gluten-free. Mm-hmm. And and then later on, maybe a couple of years ago, you started integrating gluten foods back into your diet. So I'm curious, yes. how, how can you share that story and, and why that is and why gluten isn't necessarily bad for all? Yes, I think that that is a great thing to
1: touch on. So while some people are gluten sensitive or have celiac disease, it's completely a real thing it isn't necessarily something that we all need to cut out. And there's actually can be some drawbacks to limiting it or cutting it out without having the need to. So there has been research done in this area and they have found that people who unnecessarily cut out gluten, who might not be followed by a dietitian or physician, tend to have nutrient deficiencies. So things like fiber, zinc B6, things like that, uh, they might be lower in their diets. And if they're not supplementing with other foods or a supplement that can actually cause more harm than good. And so there has also been research done showing that nutrient deficiencies, the lack of gluten in the diet can also impact your gut microbiome. So it's, it's really interesting because I feel like it is such a fad and such a trend right now, but when you look at, at gluten free products, and you compare them with the gluten full products, sometimes you'll notice that they're higher in sugar or fat, but lower in things like fiber and things and, and nutrients. And they're also less likely to be fortified right now because there's less regulation around that. So, fortifications when there's vitamins and minerals and stuff added to the product. So, yeah, so basically, cutting it out can actually be
0: more harmful than good. <laughs> Fascinating. I ended up getting a blood test uh, to test if I had celiac and I didn't have celiac, but I have a sensitivity. So Mm -hmm. I thought thought that was a little, I thought that was fascinating. So I try to be around 85, 90% gluten-free, but I'm also super mindful of eating gluten-free products that are highly processed because there are a lot of them out there. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to be wary of that. I, one of my favorite podcasts is uh, it's called feel better, live more. It's with renowned physician, Dr. Chatterjee. I don't know if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with it. Highly recommend it. And he interviews diet and nutrition experts and scientists. And as a listener, I've learned that while there are varying diets out there and good and bad foods, everyone's body is different. And I've learned that in my everyday. And we are the experts when it comes to what makes us feel good and what doesn't. You know, at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, I know what sits in my gut well and what doesn't. So I'm curious, how can we better identify a food sensitivity or intolerance ourselves? And would you recommend an elimination diet?
1: Yeah, so... I would only really suggest an elimination diet if you are being followed by a physician or a registered dietitian throughout, unless you yourself are a nutrition expert or a nutrition professional, because elimination diets, they can be super effective, but they can also be very restrictive and in the case of ADHD, there is some research to indicate that obviously there's nutrition deficiencies, um, which can impact ADHD symptoms, but there is also a higher likelihood of an elimination diet, creating food aversions and specifically with with kids. Uh, so again, sometimes they can do more harm than good, kind of like taking that example of the gluten-free, uh, free diet. So I do think that they can be very effective, but doing them properly is very important
0: fascinating i didn't realize that's interesting i mean so to turn the current conversation back to the beginning when you're talking about binge eating That's an area that Lauren and I really wanted to talk about binge eating and also trigger foods. Now, in our somewhat post COVID world today, life is getting busier, as you know. And for many of us, it can be challenging to keep on top of good eating habits. And some of us can find ourselves missing meals and overeating, as you mentioned, leading to binge eating. Now, for those who suffer from it, can you share a few tips to help them stop the cycle? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a really
1: great question. And I feel
0: like it's what a lot of people come to see me for.
1: (laughs) So I would say number one is kind of just taking time to reflect on why you might be binging in the first place. So making sure that you're eating enough and eating consistently throughout the day and checking in with yourself every few hours, but also checking in with yourself as you're eating and just kind of identifying, am I still hungry? Am I eating beyond hunger? If I am, why am I doing that? Is it because I love the texture of the food? Is it because I'm really liking the flavor or is it because I'm just eating mindlessly and I'm distracted by something else? So you really kind of have to like look inwards and kind of identify what your binge eating triggers might be. And then, yeah, as I said, first eating for stimulation, if you like the Texture of something, oftentimes with ADHDers, our brains are understimulated, so we might look to our outside environment for that like stimulating fix. Um, So instead of always resorting to food, which resorting to food isn't necessarily a bad thing, and we all eat for stimulation to some degree. That's why chefs Mm -hmm. always add like different textures to meals and stuff. It's because we love it. But having other things that you enjoy. Doing kind of in your toolbox can also be super helpful. So, including things like fidget toys, I absolutely love my putty that I play with when I work. And if you're kind of feeling like you're understimulated and you're wanting to eat, but you know you're not hungry. Having something like a fidget toy or music, brown noise can be incredibly helpful, or even just engaging in some physical activity for a bit and then coming and sitting back down. All those things can be tools that you have in your toolbox so that you're not necessarily always resorting to food for that simulation. But then also, like if you do binge, there is absolutely no need to punish yourself for that like taking the guilt out of it is so, so important because you do deserve to eat normally the next day. And this actually may help you get out of that binge restrict cycle much sooner than if you continue to kind of engage in that behavior. Uh, And as I think I mentioned before, like I, I genuinely do see binge eating as more of like a survival mechanism. Like it's really our body's way of telling us that we, need something. So by continually depriving our body of that, uh, you're not really setting it up for success. And then lastly would kind of just be having those grab and go options or that meal prep Mm -hmm. available. So for when you're feeling really hungry, um, you have something that's at hand that makes you feel good. That makes you feel full. That is satisfying to you.
0: A little side note in university, a lot of my friends, they called me the snack queen (laughs) <laughs> because I always had a snack on me and Lauren, my my good friend, Sandy from university, when Instagram started, she goes, you should, you should get the handle snack queen. <laughs> <laughs> I should have. I should have. But you know what? It's so nice to always have something on hand and it can be healthy stuff too. It doesn't need to be packaged. It could be an apple, right? Carrots, something like that. Just have yeah. things on you that are easy because a lot of people, they're on the run and they just end up resorting to binging at the end of the day because they haven't eaten throughout the day. They don't have any snacks on them. So I think having stuff on the go is really important.
1: Yeah. And there are package options that are very good and filling as well. Like you can get trail mix in a package. Kelly, I've actually seen you with those. What are they? They're the allergy blueberry bars. <laughs> allergy blueberry bars. Oh, the yum yum? The yum yum. Oh, I <laughs> love the yum yum. Oh, my gosh. I saw I'm you. A- I know. I saw you with them like two times, maybe like a year ago. And I went out and bought some because I was inspired and I love them.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. They're, well, I like the banana ones, the banana yum yums. Oh my gosh. I could eat them every day. I want to figure out how to actually make them at home because I eat them so much. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, they're That's so good.
0: It's a Canadian brand, everyone. FYI, oh, I didn't even know it was Canadian. Yeah, well, they are delicious. They Hopefully are. Delicious. They'll
1: integrate into the U.S.
0: soon. Yes, yes. And if any of our listeners have bar recommendations, send them our way because we love them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah,
2: I'll take give it to you, Lauren in my younger years, like in my twenties, when I would do super strict diets, I would always binge and -hmm. it's such a terrible cycle because then you wake up and you're sick and you're bloated and then you want to restrict again. And it's so hard to get out of it. It And, you know, finally just like making sure I was eating enough and making sure I was like incorporating everything into my diet and allowing myself to have the foods I wanted was what got me out of the cycle, as well as like learning the emotional side of why people do it too. But yeah, I feel for people who are in that binge eating cycle. It's terrible. And it's embarrassing. Like you can't really go out and binge eat in public. Like it's, you end up doing it alone in your kitchen and yeah, it's, it's a bad cycle. So I know there's a lot of research on that. And you were talking before, which has to do with trigger foods too. I know you said there's certain foods you can just eat and eat and never have enough of. I have that too, like cereal and crackers. How can you manage these? Should you not keep them in the house or like, what's your advice on that?
1: I would actually recommend continuing to keep them in the house. I do think that sometimes if we uh, restrict or limit certain foods from being around us, it kind of gives us more of that restriction mentality where if we happen to be at a party or we happen to have them in the house, then we might be more likely to binge on them because we see them as like a limited resource. Mm. So I, it's like the long route, obviously, yeah. but I really do recommend trying to like develop more of a healthy relationship with food. And ag- again, kind of identifying why you might be binging, but then also like kind of honing in on what exactly it is that you might like about that food. So if it's crunch or it's the flavor, maybe you can find that crunch or flavor in something that makes you
2: feel better. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I like that you you mentioned, hey, work on managing it versus just not having it in the house because you might come across that food you know when you're out at a party, et cetera, mm-hmm. and then you'll start binging on that item. Yeah, it's you're working through it versus just eliminating it and not actually solving the root of the problem. Yeah, I think pretending that it doesn't exist
1: for like a time a period of time is more of a band-aid fix than than actually getting to the root of
0: the the problem. So yeah. <laughs> Mindful eating. I like it. I like Mm -hmm. it. So, and this actually moves us into my question. Uh, You also help your clients develop mindful eating habits so that they can develop healthier relationships with food. And I I love that. I think it's all about being mindful and, and understanding your eating patterns and making changes from there. So can you share a lesson that you share with your clients to help them eat more mindfully? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I would say that in terms of lessons, Really kind of just figuring out what mindful is for you is so, so important, especially for people in the neurodivergent um, category like myself. Being mindful might not necessarily mean eating in silence. So um, I know that for intuitive eating and things like that, there is the recommendation that you kind of really focus on your foods and don't have distractions around you. But for somebody with ADHD, eating in silence could potentially be like nails on a chalkboard. It could be really hard to do. And so just figuring out what mindful means for you and kind of tailoring it to your lifestyle and making it completely your own is important. And it helps you kind of stick to those types of things for longer periods of time. So if you are one of those people who find it really hard to eat in silence, so if you're not eating with family or or what have you, it is okay to like listen to a podcast and eat or watch a show while you're eating. You can still be mindful in that process if you focus on the food as well. Because a lot of times people just won't do it. Like it's too hard to eat in silence. And so just allowing yourself that other stimulation can kind of like open the world of what mindful eating actually is.
0: And mindful eating is similar to intuitive eating. Is it very similar or- yeah.
1: So intuitive eating, it has intuitive eating kind of has a set of principles to it. And there's two dietitians who wrote this, uh, this book, it's called intuitive eating, and it kind of guides you through those principles and how to to eat more mindfully as well as kind of just to let go of like food shame and stuff like that. It's a really good book. If you're, you're interested and you haven't read it yet, but then mindful eating is kind of less structured as of right now.
2: Mm, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it it, t- it took me so long to learn how to eat mindfully. And um that's so interesting that you're saying about listening to a podcast. I feel like sometimes if I am watching a movie or a show when I'm eating, I can slow down and enjoy it more than if I'm just eating. I feel like then I eat fast because I'm like, well, this is all I'm doing right now. So you really have to find what works for you.
0: That's why some some doctors advise it's actually healthier to eat with someone else because it slows yeah. you down. Mm-hmm.
1: I know. And I was going to, I was actually going to touch into that because like we are recommended, I think even Canada's food guide recommends us to like eat with others when we can. And having that camaraderie when you're eating and stuff like that can be helpful just for your eating practices, your habits, but also just like your relationships. And I do think that when we kind of take people out of the equation, cause that's not always the case. Like some of us work from home and we might not have coworkers around us all the time, like allowing yourself to kind of have that, uh, like that extra external stimulation can be so helpful in kind of just like allowing yourself to enjoy the foods as
2: well. Yeah, no, it's so true. I know we've already talked about stuff that you've learned when you're studying to be a dietitian, but was there anything that like really surprised you that you learned?
1: Yeah, I, I, Yeah, I would say that there was a lot that surprised me. It's kind of unrelated to what we've been talking about, but I would actually say that it was the front of package labels, like the facts around that, that kind of surprised me. So front of package food labels they do tend to be more reserved for food marketing claims um, rather than actual like nutrition information uh, that's meant for the consumer. So I would actually focus more on the back and side panels of a nutrition package. So you have your like nutrition facts label and then the ingredients list. So, I mean, of course, when it comes to like things like allergies, the front of pack can be really helpful to guide you, but then Claims like superfood, natural, even like keto, they can have pretty misleading definitions if they even have a legal definition at all. Because one thing that I didn't know, but in Canada specifically, I think it's probably like this in the States too. If a claim or a word does not have a legal definition, you can have it on food packaging until it does have a legal definition. So like currently superfood and keto are not legally defined here. Wow. So really anyone can use them. There's no, for like keto specifically, there's no like specific carb amount that needs to be in a product. There are some certifications now, but the numbers are still a bit arbitrary. So that was one thing that I found very
2: surprising. That's, That's so awesome. funny. So they could take like a loaf of bread and just slap keto on it if they want.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Keto um, or like think about white bread. It could be a superfood. I always say that all foods are superfood because all food has nutritional benefit, even if it's just caloric value. That's That's why I always
0: turn the package on the other side and I'm always reading. I'm always saying, okay, what are these ingredients? How organic is it? How low sugar is it, you know, because you can't really listen to the wording all the time anymore, unfortunately. So yeah, you have to always read labels. I mean, my mom, even as a child, she started reading labels and she kind of taught me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is good. Great. Although back in the day, low fat was in, which is not in anymore. High fat is in, <laughs> right? So, or just good fat in general. So uh, there was a point where we learned, we had to unlearn what we had learned in the past. So it's interesting. Oh, yes. But speaking about foods in, in, and in grocery stores today, all over the news right now, especially in Canada and the US and into the UK, especially on, in terms of on meat products, Inflation has caused prices to just skyrocket. I mean, the the price of food is going up by five to seven percent right now in Canada. I found I heard that in the UK, uh, the price of meat has gone up by almost 18%, which is insane. Mm -hmm. That's so expensive. And Lauren and I continue to be mindful when it comes to grocery shopping by always carrying a list with us so that we're not buying foods that we know that we won't eat or buying too much of an item and then letting it go to waste. So I'm curious what we can do more of. Can you share a couple of cost-saving strategies when grocery shopping or how we can shop better on a budget?
1: Yeah. And I would say having a list is absolutely a great idea. And that does kind of play into meal planning. So just having a plan when you enter the grocery store, it can be so helpful in reducing food waste, but also limiting the number of times that you need to go to the grocery store in the week, which can help you save costs on gas. If you're driving, it can help you save costs on additional grocery items that you end up buying. So I don't know about you. Every time I go into the grocery store, I always end up buying a few things that are not on my list. But then, and this might be a controversial thing to say, but resorting to frozen or canned fruits and vegetables for recipes can be like a really great way to cut on costs. So historically, like both frozen and canned food has been demonized, kind of gotten a bad rep. But more recent research does show that it can be equally, if not sometimes more nutrient dense than than uh, fresh produce uh, because it's often picked when it's at its like optimal ripeness. So it's full of nutrients, right? That in there. Mm -hmm. And so I would recommend that if, if you are going to buy things like canned beans, tomatoes, corn, they're so great to make foods like chilies and soups and things like that. But I would recommend to look more for the no added sugar or sodium options. Like, unless that is what you're, you're looking for in the product. So that's one big recommendation. And then I would also say that looking at the the unit price labels can be really helpful too. So it's just a really quick way to kind of cross compare price per uh, like unit of measurement. So oftentimes when you look at the, the price label just below it, there will be like a certain cost per grams of food. And that can be really helpful if you are comparing different products against one another in terms of price. And it makes it so much faster.
0: That's great. I was actually listening to uh, the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, another podcast that I recommend, and uh, they were talking about this subject in general. And they also touched on canned foods and frozen foods. Uh, they also recommended you know, shopping with cash because then you know how much <laughs> you're spending. But but also buying generic brands. Sometimes we don't need those brand names for certain items, so something to think about as well. But yeah, they really touched on the the power of frozen foods and how these are flash frozen at the peak optimal level of nutrition of these items. So yeah, you, you touched on that. That's very, very smart.
1: Yeah. Because you don't really think about it, but when Mm -hmm. we're receiving fruits and vegetables, especially in Canada, where we don't necessarily grow a lot of these throughout the winter, the bananas and things that we're eating were sent when they were green, Mm -hmm. when they were maybe even before they were green and they ripen along the way. And so when the fruit or vegetable is allowed to like ripen on the vine, for longer, it does have a higher nutrient density. So yeah, sometimes the frozen or canned product can actually be more nutrient dense, which is amazing. Uh
2: (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes it even tastes better. Like in Canada in the dead of winter, the fruit and vegetables don't even taste that good. (laughs) I completely agree with you. So one thing I do is I have uh, my list of meals that I just rotate through. So it makes grocery shopping so easy. I don't buy random ingredients. Um, And I actually try not to try new recipes that much because if I don't like it, then I have random ingredients or I don't eat it. So I wasted that food. Do you have like meals that you rotate through? Do you try a lot of new recipes? And do you have any other like simple tips that you use with grocery shopping?
1: Yeah. Um, that's actually one thing that I do recommend to clients. And I do it as well as I have I have an old school recipe box with my favorite recipes in it. And I do find it extremely helpful, obviously in like saving time and stuff like that. Um, but in just kind of freeing up that brain space and like trying to decide what to make for the week, or if you're middle of the week and you need to make something, not having to scroll through the internet to find something, but to having those like 10 plus recipes in a box or save to your browser can be so, so helpful and, and a great time saver. I would say, again, like going to the grocery store, going grocery shopping with like a list or a plan. I, I'm a little bit, able <laughs> when it comes to my grocery list, I categorize the entire thing based on the sections of the grocery store. And I only usually go to the same two stores in my neighborhood. So I know the layout of the store and I organize my list that way so that I'm not backtracking or forgetting anything. And it does take a little bit of extra time to just organize a list, but it ends up saving me a lot of time in having to do that backtracking or like if I do forget anything, having to go and find it or when I get home and I realize that I forgot it having to go back. But yeah, I actually, I do have a meal planning guide. It's specific for ADHDers on my website, but it really could be useful for anyone. And it kind of just helps simplify the process. So it walks you through kind of like my method in terms of how I kind of plan out my meals and recipes for the week and then how I do my grocery shopping and stuff like that. So if you're interested, check it out.
0: Yeah. Also on your website, Sounds the nutrition you also have a ton of recipes, which is great.
1: I'm working on getting more. Yeah. It's one thing I got asked about the most and It's one thing I keep procrastinating on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So to begin to close, can you share a couple of your favorite thought leaders or scientists in food and nutrition? For me, uh, one of my favorites is the minimalist baker. I'm sure you've seen her. her content. She's amazing. Yes. She really simplifies food so well, so perfectly. I could watch her videos in rotation all night long. And I also follow Max Lugavere. He's He has the, the book Genius Foods and Genius Kitchen, two books that I highly recommend. But I'm curious, uh, as a registered dietitian, who do you follow? For food-based content, I love Minimalist Baker. I feel like whenever I see
1: a recipe come up with her name on it, I know it's gonna be a good one. Then another one is Give Me Some Oven. Oh, okay. All of her recipes are absolutely incredible. But then for more of like the food, science, food, uh, like nutrition world, I would say that it's Evelyn Tribal and Elise Wretch who wrote that intuitive eating, that book. So if you are interested in eating more intuitively, more mindfully, I would recommend kind of checking out their resources and even getting that book if you're, if you're so eager. And then in terms of like more fun nutrition accounts, food science, babe. It's one of my absolute favorites, not food, babe, <laughs> who has blocked me on Instagram, <laughs> but food science, babe. Uh, so she, she is a food scientist and she kind of debunks common food fear claims that you might be hearing either in the news or seeing on social media. And she does it in such a, a great way where it's super understandable. And it really kind of makes you realize that The food industry might not necessarily be against us, which I think is really important to, to acknowledge. But then also there's another nutrition account. It's at the nutrition tea, Shanna Spence.
2: I love her content as well. It's great. Very helpful. Mm -hmm. And where can our listeners find you?
1: Yeah. So you can find me on my website. So it's the and junkie is spelt with a Y um, and then that's also where you can find that meal planning guide that I mentioned. And then you can find me on social media.
0: So Instagram and TikTok at the nutrition junkie. Fantastic. And, okay. and, and you work with clients all over the world, right? You can, you work virtually as well. I do. I actually, I have recently stopped seeing clients one-on-one. I'm creating
1: a course. To be launched this year in an ebook and have some fun things coming down the pipeline. But one of the reasons was I was just finding that seeing clients globally was a bit challenging with like time changes and stuff like that. So I mm-hmm. want to create some resources that are more accessible. So yeah, that's what I'm doing.
0: Oh, fantastic. When did those launch? <laughs> the ebook is coming out
1: in, I was going to say in February. It is February. It should be coming out this month. And then the course I'm working on, I, had initially planned to have it out before my mat leave, but it won't be out probably until mid to late year.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank yeah, you nice so nice. much. Oh, it's so much fun to hang out with you, Becca, in this way. So you're I so know. knowledgeable. We're so happy to have you on. And uh yeah, everybody check out the nutrition junkie.com. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. <laughs> yeah, this
2: was great. Thanks so much. Thanks Becca. so much.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. That was our conversation with our good friend and registered dietitian and ADHD nutritionist, Becca Harris, otherwise recognized as the Nutrition Junkie. And you can learn more about Becca on her website at thenutritionjunkie.com. And as always, you can find this link and more in our show notes. And to close, I want to say a big thank you to those of you who have written us a kind rating and review on iTunes. We really appreciate your kind feedback and your words really keep us motivated and help our podcast grow. So thanks again for listening and I will speak with you next week. Bye-bye.